And uh, this morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series on the Gospel of John. And I'm beginning in chapter 20. Because I think this is the introduction. I want to take a whole sermon just to set up John and who he is and what he's about and what he has to say, because I think he has told us. Um, a while back, if you hear, we did a sermon series on uh, the seven signs of John. So I was a little bit nervous about doing more John. Um, but look, this is my first time preaching every week. And so I just needed to have something that I was familiar with, that I'm excited about, so you can have happy Nathaniel. And... Uh, <laughs> And not stress Nathaniel up here for the next six months. And also, I wanted something for us that would promote life. And uh, all the scriptures do that in their own way, but but it's hard to not be impacted by spending time with Jesus. Because because he's the one. You know, there's... We've been saying and being reminded of that so many ways already in the service, that Jesus is the one. That he made everything, it's all made for him, and through him, and to him. Uh, that he's the one that represents the Father. And so I want for me and for us to spend the next few months spending time with Jesus. Uh, to take him in, to contemplate him into our hearts and minds and lives, and see if that might set us on fire again. Um, just set your expectations. We're not going to finish the book. Uh, I do not want to try and do 21 chapters of John in the next six months. We'll be lucky if we make it to five. Um, but but there's, there's good stuff there. And uh, so we're just going to take it as it comes and, uh, and meander through John, spend some time with Jesus. Uh, John's theme statement comes from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John just read this for us. Now, Jesus did... Many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Now remember, this is coming right at the end of the gospel. So he's, he's saying, look, I wrote you a lot of stuff. But there's a lot of other stuff that I didn't write. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to these um, two very simple verses, I pray that you would be working in our hearts and lives just to lay the groundwork to hear the witness and testimony of John, the disciple that you loved. Lord, I have never met John, but you did. And you gave him a message, a fire in his heart from yourself, through your spirit. You said, When I leave, my spirit will bring all these things into your remembrance. And you did that for John, and he shared it with us. And I believe that you have protected these words for us till this day. So I pray that you would make it alive for us this morning and every morning in these coming months, that we might know that you, you are the Christ, the Son of God, that we might have life in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so I don't know why Presbyterian pastors have to have three points. And I have very cleverly divided this passage into three points. Point one is these things have been written. Point two is that you may believe. And point three is that you may have life in his name. I want to start just by talking about the things that have been written. John wrote this stuff down for us. 
And uh, I think it would be good at the beginning to at least briefly ask the question, why should we listen to these words? Why should we believe or trust these words? In fact, to put a point on it, how can you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these words are true? Dumb. I know to spend a lot of time on this question would bore some of you, but I feared that to not ask this question ever would be a failure on my part because many people have questions about the Bible. And frankly, if you look in the academic literature, if there's a Bible book that someone's going to question, it's John. John's always the first one to go. So I want to ask, if we're going to study John, why should we study John? Why should we receive it as authoritative? And to the question, how can you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, with no doubt that these words are true, here's my answer. You can't. That can't be done. But here's the next thing I would say, that 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 type of knowledge which has been handed down to us since the Enlightenment is actually not possible of anything. So not only can you not know that these words are trustworthy, you can't know that the Seattle Seahawks beat the Carolina Panthers yesterday. And I'm pretty confident that they did. I've followed the game, and I believe that they won. But I can't know it because I'm not, I wasn't there. I actually didn't watch the game, but I kind of updated the score on my phone every 30 seconds. I was running around the island, okay? I'm a Seahawks fan. I grew up in Seattle. And uh, it's, it, it, it was a long, long, long journey until we got to the Super Bowl. And uh, um, I'm excited to keep this going. It's, you know, being a Seattle Seahawks fan was like being a Cleveland's Brown fan for a long time. Anyway, this is a good season. Anyway, so not only, I wasn't there at the game. I don't know what happened. I actually don't even know that the Carolina Panthers exist. I'm pretty confident the Seahawks exist because I grew up in Seattle. I've been to a game. I saw them build the stadium. I've seen some of the players. I can tell you from firsthand experience it exists. I've never been to North Carolina, and I don't know that the Panthers exist. This makes sense. I mean, maybe this sounds super strange, but, but take it in. I've never been there. I haven't seen it, and I don't know. But I believe it because I think that ESPN is a reputable source. I do. I have a lot of faith in ESPN when they tell me there's a team, the Carolina Panthers, and they played Seattle at home, and they lost. I believe it. Because I trust them. It's a reputable source. And my friends, I've got big books written on this subject. Um, But suffice it to say, if you take time meditating on this, that truth will permeate and change your reality. There is no knowledge available apart from faith. That uh, Descartes began this journey where he said, I'm just going to question everything that's questionable. And what he gaffed, what he's left with is the only thing I know is that I exist. And then um, Kant and Nietzsche came along, and they were like, well, you can't really know that. 
you know, and then psychologists help us really discover that you, you, you really, really can't know about yourself with certainty. And if you follow the train of, I'm not going to believe in this unless I know it for certain beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will end up in a closet and you will not eat and you will die. And it's a joke, but not really. You don't have a way of verifying that food will nourish your body. You, you can't existentially do it. That on some level to exist, you cannot exist apart from faith. And, um, and that's true of science as well. And I speak to you as one who has a great fascination and appreciation for science. I worked in a science lab in college. I got a minor in geology. My job was doing isotopic dating on um, granite outcropping in the northwest. There's a lot to be learned there. I, I believe in the helpfulness of science. But even good scientists will tell you our knowledge at the end of the day is based on faith. That we take it on faith that the hypothetical method is a useful process, that, that scientific processes continue on at a steady rate, which we can't really know because none of us were around to verify that 13,000 or 13 million years ago. But there's good reasons to think so, that, that I think other scientists that have written papers and had them verified, I think they're reputable witnesses. I'm trying to make the case is the only knowledge available to you is witness. And every time you decide to believe something or not, on some level you're asking myself, do I think this person is a reputable witness? And so John says to us in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is setting himself up as a witness. John is the sensory gospel. He's the sensory apostle. He wants you to know, I was there. I saw Jesus. I touched him. I ate food that he gave me. I'm a witness. I'm just telling you what I saw. Now, you can disbelieve his witness. That, that's, that's fine. You can do that. But that doesn't, the dichotomy that we have in our culture between scientific facts, which we know for certain, and things that we have to take on faith is, um, is not a useful dichotomy. That on some level, we have to make a decision. Is John a reputable witness? And uh, people have asked good questions about whether or not John is a reputable source. One of the reasons why people question John is it's one of the last books that was written in the New Testament. Um, potentially as late as 80 or 90 A.D. So people ask for good reason if things, things happened between 30 and 33, give or take, and John wrote them down as much as 60 years later. Why should we put weight on his testimony? Why are you going to ask someone what they saw 60 years ago? And here's my answer. Some things are so unforgettable that you will never forget them. And you remember them in profound detail. I remember my grandfather um, telling of a time that he uh, grew up 
in a small oyster town on the Washington coast, and uh, I found out um, as a teenager that my mild-mannered, organized, and responsible grandfather was a little bit of a prankster. And uh, he told me a story which, given my knowledge of his personality, I wasn't quite sure that he believed that at one point in high school, he um, went down the street to the iron mill that was in town and got an iron ore cart and pushed it at night down the street three or four blocks to the high school, and this is 19, late 1930s, so the high school was not locked, and he pushed the iron ore cart into the high school behind the doors and chained it to the gym doors from the inside and crawled out through a window. And uh, my grandfather was in his 80s at this point. And uh, the next time we had a family reunion, I went back to South Bend. Um, the iron foundry is closed, but the building is still there. The cart had, we, you can see the cart. The wheels are still there. It's coloring and the lettering on the side is exactly as he described. The gym doors are still where they were, and he could show me the window out of which he crawled. He's able to describe the whole thing for me in great colorful detail some 60 years later. Now, perhaps some of you have had some very vivid moment of a crisis or being arrested or something, and I bet that you remember the color of things around you and the smell. And uh, I've got to believe that to live with Jesus for three years and to see and hear the things that he did is such a profound experience that some of those things would be seared on your mind forever in profound detail, especially if, as Jesus says is the case, that the Holy Spirit works to recall those things to your mind as you write them down. I put a reflection in the front of the worship folder, and if any of you read it, you probably were profoundly confused. Uh, um, But now I'll tell you why it's there. It's the first one. Uh, It's a quote from Irenaeus, who was a teacher in the early church, early 2nd century. So by this point, we're at like 120, 150 A.D., not long after Jesus, but we are already at the point in his lifetime where everyone who met and saw Jesus has died. And so the church is already dependent upon memory and testimony and witness. And uh, Irenaeus was a pastor in France, but he actually grew up in Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, and he was discipled by a man named Polycarp, who was discipled by John, who wrote John. And Irenaeus says at the end of his life, so now he's in his 80s, and he's, he's recalling his relationship with his mentor, Polycarp. And he says... I remember the events of those days more clearly than those which have taken place recently. For what we learn as boys grows up with our lives and becomes united to them. So I can describe for you the very place where the blessed Polycarp sat and discoursed. How he came in and went out, his manner of life and his bodily appearance, the discourses which he used to deliver to the people, and how he would tell of his conversations with John, and with the others who had seen the Lord, and how he remembered their words, and what things he had heard from them about the Lord, including his mighty works and his teaching. So we're less than a hundred years after Jesus' death, and there's already this somewhat emotional tradition of remembering what we have heard from our fathers in the faith, that John saw Jesus, and he told Polycarp about it, 
And Polycarp talked to John a lot. And then Polycarp shared those stories with Irenaeus before he was martyred. And Irenaeus is writing them down for us. And now there's more generations in between, but the reality is no different, that we exist on a tradition that's been passed down to us by people who lived before us, who saw Jesus and have passed their witness and their testimony down to us. And, uh, you know, we, we can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus existed, that John existed. We don't have any of the original copies of the New Testament. But that's not unusual for us in our culture. It's easier for us to verify the New Testament's veracity and existence than it is for us to verify things like the existence of Cicero or Homer or even Julius Caesar, that there's more period documents pertaining to Jesus than there are the Caesars themselves. And yet we don't doubt that Caesar existed because we trust the witnesses that have passed down this material to us. And we have more witnesses, more testimony to believe what John has said and that his works are true. Not everything that John says in his gospel is verifiable. This is another point. But, but the things that are verifiable have been verified. That John, as I said, he's the sensory gospel. He's always saying things like, I was there. I saw it. It smelled like this. Lazarus smelled bad. We were worried that he would. Um, he describes in great detail the pool of Siloam in chapter 5 and other places in Jerusalem. And for a man who is living a thousand miles away, 60 years later, he describes with everything that we can verify in profound and exact detail the structure and the layout of the pool of Siloam, the cultural tensions that existed at the time in the first century that the things that we are able to verify have been successfully verified. So you have someone who has seen profound experiences. He's testifying, I saw these things. This is what I know. And you can't verify everything. But if everything that you can verify turns out true, this starts to look like a pretty reputable source. And to that, I would just add, as we go through John, listen to what he says and see if it fits your life and your experience with people. Because that's our, our final witness to his truth. That he says, I'm writing to you about the truth of Jesus, about the truth of the way that things are. And um, I'm young, but I have been studying the scriptures for about 15 years intently now, and I can tell you that I have more confidence and deep, profound trust in John as a witness to Jesus and the accuracy of the reality of human nature than I ever have before. Uh, and I encourage you to ask these questions as you go along. If you have other questions about the trustworthiness of John, um, feel free to ask me. I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, smart people, much smarter than me, have written large books on the reliability of the Old Testament, New Testament history, and the connections between what the authors of the Gospel and the New Testament have said and what we know from history. And um, no, we can't know for certain, but there are good reasons to believe. I forgot to fit this one in, but, but one more. This is an argument from silence, that if you were to write, if you were to make up a gospel, even 60 years later, and, and you know that you're making it up, you would not include details, would you? 
you would not say this happened. For I'm using an example from Acts. You would not say Paul was converted by falling off his horse and a light from heaven, and he went to Antioch and he stayed on Straight Street in John's house. He would not write that because you know that someone could go to Antioch and say, where is Straight Street? And know if there was a Straight Street or not and go there and ask, were, did these people used to live here? Was there once... Is, are there any known stories about a man who fell out of the window while Paul was preaching? There's, the Gospels and Acts have so many stories with so many details. And uh, in the first and second centuries, there were so many people that hated Christianity. I find it hard to believe that none of them went on a mission to discredit some of these details. And we have no record whatsoever of any publication of any kind from Jew, Greek, Roman, anyone questioning the veracity of any of the verifiable details in any of the Gospels. That all the arguments that arise in the first couple centuries against Christianity are arguments like, well, these people won't really bow down to Caesar, and that's not a good way to live. They're just, just disruptive people. Or, well, we know that God in the Old Testament, God is one, but they say he's three, and we know that's not true. And Jesus himself claimed to be God, and we know that no man is God, so we should kill him. Those are the kind of arguments that arose, but we can't find arguments of, you know, they said that Jesus went to the pool of Siloam, and we can't find anyone who ever said that he was there, for whatever it's worth. Um, John says that he has written these things for us. Immediately before this, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. This should tell you that John has selectively organized these stories to communicate a truth. Another one of the concerns that people have about John is it's different from the other three Gospels, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of follow the same storyline, and some of them use the same stories in the same language, and John doesn't. And he tells some of those stories in a different order. And that doesn't bother me at all. That John, the Gospel of John is like a sauce. You know, Mark is like the fresh version. Like, it just happened. I just wrote it down. Immediately. Immediately, by the way, is the most used word in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And immediately, it happened. John was written much later. It's like you, you take, like, eight gallons of broth. And you, like, you, you cook it down. And you cook it down some more. And you add some more flavoring. And you cook it down some more. And eventually, what you're left with is about two cups of sauce. And that's John that this man has been mulling on this stuff his whole life. And he has organized the, most, the, the details that he thinks are most important to communicate to you what he calls the truth. The truth about Jesus. And um, any of you know, sometimes you can more accurately tell the truth by not telling things in chronological order. And so I have no problem believing that, um, that John has moved some stories around, and he has done what he's done with profound literary technique. Look, the man thought this through. There are seven signs. There are seven I am sayings. That this is a work of art, and he has selected the things that he has. Jesus did a lot of stuff. He said, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of ways I could have written this, but I have picked these stories so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that you may have life in his name. 
So John has written these things. He's written them that we may believe. In Greek, it's, um, it's a little bit ambiguous whether the word here for believe means begin to believe or continue believing. Remember, if, if Greek can do anything well, it's communicate tense. That things used to happen, but they don't happen anymore. Or they haven't started happening yet, but when they do start happening, they'll keep on happening. Or it started, but it stopped. You can communi- communicate all those things. And sometimes it's a little bit ambiguous that uh, this word could mean, I'm, I've written these things for you so that you might start to begin believing. That you don't yet. But if you read these things, you might begin believing that Jesus is the Christ. But you could also read it that John is saying, I know that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. All right? We're, we are all believers here. And I've written these things down so that you can keep on believing. So that you can grow and be established in your faith and be challenged. And it seems to me very in accordance with John's literary style and nature that he did that intentionally. That the answer is yes. That the gospel does both things. If you're not quite sure if Jesus is the Christ and you read John, you might be convinced because many people have. He's presenting to you Jesus and his work and he wants you to believe in him. And if you're here today or you're part of our church and you're really not quite sure what to do with this Jesus guy, he's kind of cool, kind of weird, not quite sure if I really believe that a man is God, that's okay. And you probably feel comfortable being uncomfortable being honest about that here. That shouldn't be the case. But I want to invite you to be honest about that and to go ahead and ask questions. Don't just give the bank away. Ask John your questions. Challenge him and see if this is worth putting weight down, if this is a a trustworthy testimony, if Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. For a lot of you here, you've probably believed that for a long, long time. And this message is for you also. Because most of the stuff in John, you won't understand unless you're already a Christian. There's so many little inside things and subtle comments that don't really make sense unless you've been living in this world a while. So John is writing to convince people of Christianity, but also probably to the community that was around him at Ephesus at the time to establish them in the truth. That by the time he wrote, he wrote his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke have already been written. People are being brought to faith. And before he dies, he wants to do it again. He wants to distill down the most important stuff in an organized way so that those who believe in Jesus might really believe and keep believing and know what we have seen and heard and how it impacts your life in your intellect, in your decisions, in your emotions, in your choices. That's very much the way I think the Gospel of John works. John uses the word believe in his Gospel 99 times. He wants you not just to go through the motions, not just to consider it. He wants you to believe and to continue believing, to live and inhabit this world of thought as the primary reality. And then he says in our translation, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And every translation I've seen says Jesus is the Christ, but that's actually not what it says in Greek. It says, so that you might believe that the Christ is Jesus. That doesn't really make sense, so we don't translate it that way. But again, John's so subtle. I 
think the emphasis is there on the Christ first because, yes, John's going to try and convince you that Jesus is the Christ, but he's going to do it by teaching you who the Christ is. That the fundamental question in John is, uh, yeah, is Jesus the Christ? Sure, he's the Christ. What is the Christ? What really? Because we find out that the Christ is the one who enters into a wedding where there's not enough wine. Because the world doesn't have enough. And he's going to give it more, way more than is necessary. He's going to fill us to the full. That's what the Christ does. He enters into the temple and he makes whips and he drives people out. Because he's jealous for his father's worship and he's going to clean house. That's what the Christ does. He heals people and then draws away from them and comes back to give them a chance to grow. That as we follow Christ through John, we learn not just that Jesus is the Christ. We learn what is the Christ? What is it that Jesus came to do? So we're going to study the things that John has written that we may believe and continue believing who the Christ is and that he is Jesus. And finally, so that we may have life in his name. This is my favorite part. I'm setting this before us as the theme of the Gospel of John so that as we go through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, we can ask, who is Christ? And what does it mean to have life in his name? And John's John just loads up words with meaning. And, and this, this word, this life, it, uh, yes, life is opposed to dead, but it has a meaning. It has a meaning for me, and I've been thinking about it all week, and I, I actually I don't know how to communicate to you what life means. And I don't know that there's really a way to do it without going through John and discovering what life means. But suffice it to say that John really thinks that you're not really human. unless you have taken in Jesus the Christ and he has shaped your intellect and your heart and your mind and your emotions and made you alive. When I was in college in Seattle, I was attending a church called Green Lake, and I was the University of Washington just down the road with Seattle Pacific University. And one Sunday, a whole group of girls, four or five or six showed up who were all students at SPU in the back row and began attending that Sunday and kept attending. Uh, And one of them, Megan, was from Alaska. And um, she, I guess, thought of herself as a believer. But there's no, there's nothing going on in her heart, in her emotions, practically in her life that would make that a reality. She goes to SPU, which is a Christian school, and goes to church with her friends and roommates because they're going to church. She's like, oh, sure, seems like a good thing to do. She comes along, and Pastor Kelly is preaching through John. And two years later, Megan was a believer, and she was our church secretary. And uh, Pastor Kelly had never done a sermon on the word life, The word life is in John a lot. And if anyone ever asked Megan, why did you become a Christian? Why do you work for a church? What is the gospel? What is the deal with Christianity? It was almost as if she didn't really know how to explain it, aside from just saying, it's life. 
I thought I had life before, but I, I, I didn't really. She's kind of an angry person. And um, after she became a believer, her life actually got more difficult. Most of her life dreams died. Being successful, entrepreneur, leader, person. But she was alive. That she knew the one who made the grass. And she knew that he was in the, the, the joyful parts and the dark parts of her life. And somehow that, that was life. She's more alive than she ever was before. And I think to this day that I don't think anyone knows more what that word life means than Megan. John himself records Jesus in John chapter 17, praying for us. He says this in 17.3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To my Western mind, that definition doesn't really help me that much. But it's worth meditating on. That John says that Jesus says that life, to be alive, means to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. My friends, that's what I want for us. And I don't know what that means, but I want to discover it together. I want for us to be a people who are alive in the gospel, alive to our emotions and our minds and our dreams and most, most of all, alive to the God who made heaven and earth and Jesus Christ, his son, about whom all this stuff exists, whom the angels and those who've gone before us happily, joyfully bow down and worship an instant and long to be in his presence. That John himself, two weeks ago I did a, a sermon on how a person's life changes over the course of their life in walking with God. And John is one of these people that he started out um, he had a brother, James and John, and Jesus nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. I can only imagine what that means. John was perhaps about 16 at the time. He was young. And uh, they, they did the sorts of things that Sons of Thunder might do. Uh, some town rejected Jesus, and John and James come up and they say, Hey, can we call fire down from heaven and destroy all those people? That would be awesome. Short time later, it's James and John who come up to Jesus and says, Say, Jesus, we would like you to do for us whatever we ask. It's just a bad question to begin with. And Jesus humors them and says, what is it that you would like for me to do for you? And they say, we would like to sit at your right and your left hand when you come into your glory. But it's that John. John, young John, son of thunder. He was the only apostle who was present at our Lord's death. And a short time later, his brother was the first apostle to be executed. And the Gospels, James and John, always go together. James and John, James and John, James and John. And whatever their relationship, that had to have been a profound loss for him. To lose his brother. Sixty years later, he's alone, marooned on a desert island, and he has more life than he ever has had before. 
and he spends his last few years soft, lovable John writing about love. He's the one who said, God is love. Love one another, my little children. He wrote us the gospel of John. He wrote us these things that we might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that he has, I think, not the audacity, but the humility to say, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. That his identity changes from, I'm the one who wanted to sit at his right hand, to, I'm the one who is loved by him. And he wants for us that same life as well. We are writing these things that your joy may be complete. I pray for all of us that we may enter into that joy within these next few months. Let's pray.